My name is Brenda Lynn. I'm an alcoholic. Because of the grace of a God that I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous, the actions of the 12th step and sponsorship, I've been sober since July 11th of 1980. And I thank you, but that's not for me. Um, that's for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, if it was up to me, I, I wouldn't be here. Um, I took actions that you asked me to take that I did not believe would work, and I was going to prove to you that they wouldn't work, and here I am. So I want to thank you for that. <clears throat> My uh, home group is the Fox Hall Chapter 7 group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet every Thursday night. Yay. <laughs> we meet every Thursday night at 7.30. Like Terry says, handshaking starts at 7. In Adi or Eden Prairie, Minnesota, at the Wooddale Church. So if you're ever in town and you need a meeting on Thursday night, and you need a ride to the meeting, just call the intergroup office, tell them you want to go to the Fox Hall meeting, and somebody will get you. And I know that that works, because I, said that when I, I, I say that every time I speak, and one time a lady actually heard it, and she was visiting from Seattle, and she called intergroup, and somebody picked her up, and she was at the meeting. So um, please join us. It's a great enthusiastic group of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I was thinking about that yesterday when I was thinking about, because all of, all of the speakers have talked about their home groups. And I was, ta I was thinking about um, my home group and, and why I think my home group is the best AA group ever. You know, and I think everybody should feel that way. And if you don't feel that way, you have some work to do. Because I, it's an enthusiastic, vibrant meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we carry the message of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, the message of 12 steps of recovery. And um, we have, it's a large meeting. It's a large open speaker meeting. There's about, we average 300 to 350 people every Thursday night. And a fourth, probably about a fourth of that membership are um, alcoholics under the age of 21. That's why when Dustin stood up and he said, his sobriety date was 2004. I went, oh my gosh. I said, how old were you when you got sober? He said, 17. And a lot of the people in, in my home group are, are younger than that, um, coming in and, and getting sober. I needed the program long before I even took my first drink, really. Um, I before I forget, I want to thank the committee. I want to thank my host, my hostess. Um, Emily and um, her husband Aaron. Um, I want to thank all of the other speakers that have talked this weekend. Um, you have you you've been fantastic. Hasn't everybody been great? Yes. <laughs> Trying to get everybody awake. Come on, let's wake up. Let's wake up. Um, I especially I never know what I'm going to hear. I never actually I never really know what I always need. <clears throat> I think I do, but I don't. And so my best chance at this thing of staying around here and staying in the middle is to just go where I'm supposed to be. And when I attend a, a roundup or a conference like this, um, I'm here to go to the meetings. And I never know what I'm going to hear that I need to hear or who God's going to put in my life for me to hear a message. And I want you to know that I heard a message this weekend, and it came via Al-Anon. Yeah. <laughs> Linda got me. Okay? I was sitting there in the front row, and I thought she was talking just to me. 
because sometimes it is just all about me. Um, I always I always make notes. Uh, Terry just I know it drives him crazy, but that's okay. Um, I always make notes, and I'm a reader, I'm a writer, and I'm a reader. And so I, you know, I, it was no, I was saying before the meeting, it was no coincidence that um, when I served as delegate, had the privilege of serving as delegate for my area, that I was, I served on the literature committee. And I decided that when, when I got, when I found that out, I thought, oh, I'm going to read every piece of literature that we have. I've read a lot of the books, but I'm going to, I'm going to get it all. Even our service letter, literature, and that's not conference approved, but I'm going to read that too. And you, I, did, I couldn't. We have a lot of literature. We really do. But, you know, I learned something really important sitting on this, that committee, and I want, to, I want to share that with you because I think it's really indicative of what, we, what we're all about. Um, that we sat up for, I mean, a couple of days we, had, we were in committee longer than we were supposed to be. We had extra hours where we had to meet. And I have to tell you that um, the members of Alcoholics Anonymous all over the United States and Canada, all over the world, really, but we really um, write the literature here. It's, it's a common message. It's a message of singleness of purpose and what can we do to better reach out to the alcoholic who still suffers. I will never make it through this morning without crying. That's just the way it's going to be because um, I'm a crier too. But I, I, we, we deliberated and we discussed and we left no stone unturned in trying to make decisions of what goes into our literature to make sure that the message that we carry in the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous is one single message with our singleness of purpose, and, and it doesn't ha- it's nothing more than that, okay? And so I really learned a lot in serving on that committee, and I learned that my, my best ideas are not always the best for AA as a whole. I would like to think that they are, but... Um, Thank goodness that I have a God of my understanding today that allowed me the opportunity, that helped me, gave me the courage and the strength to be open to hearing what other people had to say and, and to really look at what is best for Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. So um, I use the literature. I, it, it says it better than I can. I use the literature. Um, the other thing that uh, Cindy mentioned when, and when you were talking yesterday about the fact, and I noticed this too, and I went, dang, she took my line, um, is that all of the speakers this weekend are couples. And I, you know, it is really, um, it's important for me to see other um, members of AA and Al-Anon in recovery who have been together for a long time. I mean, that was one of the things that attracted me to my sponsor and to her husband was the fact that they were they had been sober even when I got sober. I mean, my sponsor sobered up in 1964, and what Dick sobered up in 65. Yeah, she's got a year more than he does. That's right. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> um, and I, they had been sober a long time. I you know I came around in 80. They had been sober a long time and been together a, lo- a lot of that time, and I wanted that. I wanted to be able to have a long-term relationship with someone where I wasn't taking a hostage. Because that's all I knew, you know? And I, I use people. That, those are the kinds of relationships that I had when I was in Elko, when I was drinking, is I use people. I use men. I was manipulative. 
I, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and I used you, and when I was done, you were gone, and I moved on to somebody else. And I didn't, I didn't like that. I mean, there was a piece of me, every time that happened, there was a piece of me that just kind of chiseled off. And, I, and so it was, really, it was really something that I desired. And after I, um, I'm going to jump all over the place, okay? I'm sorry. I'm drunk. I'm sober. I'm drunk. I'm sober. But that's, I can't tell. You know, I was thinking, I, I was looking in the mirror this morning, and I said, God, please just, please just help me to make sure that I can try to get my words in a straight line in my head so that they come out with some meaning and make sense. Because sometimes I have all this, I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I have all this stuff swirling around in my head, and it, it seems like the words just don't want to go in a straight line to come out. So um, I'm, I'm going to try to make sense this morning, but I will be all over the place. Anyway, where was I? Long-term relationship. Um, so it was really nice to be able to um, see that, that, that you all have um, relationships long-term and that you're doing it together one day at a time in recovery from the illness of alcoholism. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank the committee for doing that. I think that's great. Okay. Yay. Okay. Um, I'm going to start backwards today because that's just sometimes how I do things. Um, But what I want to talk about, because I sometimes forget, is I want to talk about um, what I do today to maintain my spiritual connection. What I do today to stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Because I have learned that I've got my best shot shot at recovery from alcoholism and my best shot at never picking up another drink if I can stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I just want to share with you so that, because sometimes we get, we run out of time and we get to the end and um, I'm going to get a signal if I go over, so. I won't, but, well, I shouldn't say that. Okay, anyway. Um, first of all, I know somebody talked about this earlier, but I, or earlier in the weekend. I attend meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know there's more to it than just attending meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I think that's a good place to start. And um, I attend, I, I also went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I missed a few in there, too. But, I, you know, I, and I know that it doesn't say that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm still here. And what that did for me, when it was suggested to me that I go to 90 meetings in 90 days, I thought, that's crazy. Why would I want to do that? That'll never work. But what happened was the woman that 12-stepped me either took me to that, took me to a meeting, she either had someone else go with me to the meeting, she either picked me up, or I met her at her place. I was never at a meeting by myself. There was always somebody there with me so that I would not be alone. And I, it, you know, I always knew, it, it kind of took the guesswork out of it. I, I did, you know, it, if, I had th- if I had had another plan when I got to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be here. I didn't, I'd run out of plans. And so when she said 90 meetings in 90 days, I went, okay. I, I understood that. That means I'm going to a meeting every day. So that means that every day I'm going to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that means I'm probably not going to drink. But that was okay because I didn't, at that point, I'd hit my bottom. I had surrendered. And so I was willing to, to, to give that a try. Today I try to go to at least three meetings a week of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Um, I don't know the magic in that number. I just know that um, it, it seems to work best for me. It seems to work best for a lot of other people around me. One of those meetings is my home group. Um, I, I have always had a home group in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believe that it's important to do that, that I have a place where I am accountable because I, I don't always want to be accountable. Sometimes I want to just break out in bad. And um, if, I have, if I have a home group and I know where I'm going and, I, and people expect me to be there and I'm not there, they want to know where I'm at. And because my sponsor lives out of town, because she, she's in Nebraska, I don't, you know, I don't have my sponsor in my face all the time. But she also sponsors, sponsors a couple of other women who live in Minneapolis. So if I'm not at the meeting, the next, one of the first questions I get from them when I, the next time I see them is, where were you last Thursday night? So there's people checking up on me. Plus, I've told the women that I sponsor that if, if I'm not around, I want, you to, I want you to call me. I want you to tell people. I want, you know, I, because I, I have to have those interrupters. I have to, a woman I sponsor, Sonia, talks about that. I have to have those interrupters. I have to have those things that keep and hold me accountable. So um, I, and, and the other thing is, I always thought that the meetings were, I, I, I don't know where I, I, you know, sometimes I make stuff up. Okay. Um, if I, and I, I don't mean to. I, it just happens. It's like, have you ever had it come out of your mouth and you're like, oh. <laughs> that wasn't totally true, but it's too late. But then, it, now I've developed this conscience, okay? And so I, it's almost like there are some times when I don't come clean right away. But eventually I have to. But in my brain, I, I, I was thinking about that, the, the insanity of my brain. You know, I, I had a hard time with the second step when I got sober. I don't know why. I just, I had a hard time with, it's like if I'm going to be restored to sanity, then that means that there must be some insanity. Now, I always thought it would be kind of cool to be insane. <laughs> Um, because then I wouldn't be a drunk. You know, I could just plead insanity. And that would take me off the hook. I wouldn't have to be responsible for my actions. But when you were telling me that I had insanity, you know, it's okay for me to, to diagnose myself with an insanity. But when somebody else is saying there's some insanity, I don't like it. And so when I looked at that, I went, I don't understand. What, what would that mean? What would that look like? What, what would insanity be? And, I, and there's a definition in the book, continuing to do the same things, expecting different results. I can understand that. I've done that all my life. Gee, I wonder why I'm not getting anything different. It's because I'm doing the same thing. But I like to look at another definition of insanity, and that is my brain tells me stuff that isn't true, and I believe it. And that is really, for me today, that is the definition of my insanity of alcoholism, even though I've been sober almost 27 years. My brain still tells me stuff that isn't true, and I believe it. I'll give you an example. And it has a lot to do with self-centeredness, okay? <laughs> Just in case you want to know that. 
It has a lot to do with the hum of self-awareness. An example would be, I could be standing in a group of women, and somebody might say to Kim, gee, Kim, you, you look really nice. Your hair looks really great. Did you do something different to your hair? You must have done something different to your hair because it looks really great. And I'm standing in there thinking to myself, well, what's the matter with my hair? <laughs> you know, my hair, I just had my hair done. It looks pretty good. Why, I don't, you know, her hair doesn't look that great. <laughs> I'm joking, but... <laughs> But, I mean, that's how I think. Well, what's the matter with my hair? What's the matter with me? What's the matter with the way I'm dressed? It's, it's about me. And when I'm into that, it's like a self-will run riot, you know? And when I was drinking, that's all I could see. It was all about me, all about me, me, me. How is this going to affect me? What am I gonna, what's going to happen to me? And it, it really was about where that all stems from. It was really fear. It's all about fear. And it's fear of, and I, you know, all of this is, all of this I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? It's not something that I, I, I had and I got back. I mean, I, I just, when, when I was growing up, there was a book that was handed out to everybody about how to live life, and I didn't get it, okay? Or I, maybe I got it and didn't read it, because I don't like to read instructions anyway. So... I, you know, it just I it's this self-centered ego that I have that that just I, somebody was talking about this earlier this weekend about this committee in my head. You know, it's just all about me. And when I'm in that, I, there is absolutely no way that I can be of service to anyone else around me. And one of the things that I have learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous is that in order for me to grow spiritually, in order for me to find a sufficient substitute for alcohol, which is what I have to find here. And it has to be it has to be more powerful than alcohol. I have to find a sufficient substitute to alcohol. And in order for me to find that, I have to I have to somewhere get out of myself and let go of some of that self centeredness. And the only way I know how to do that is to try to find some humility. Well that sounds great, doesn't it? But what is that? You know, I when I heard somebody when I first heard somebody um, talk about humility in one of my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought, I don't know what that is. To me, it was like humiliation. You have to be humiliated, and I knew what that was, and I thought, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't sound very good. Well, after I'd been here a while, I understood what it was about, and I, it took me a while. I had to have experiences and examples put in front of me. In the fifth step, in the twelve and twelve. It talks about what humility is after we um, take, do our fourth step and are, are entering in to t- do our fifth step. We get a clear recognition of who and what we have become with a sincere desire to be what we can be. You know, we have both those thoughts at, together. That we, we, I, get, I was able to clearly see who and what I had become. But you had, in, in that period of time, you had given me enough hope to see that I wanted to be something different. My first lesson in humility, and I, I want to talk about this because um, uh, it really was a turning, it, it was one of my first turning points in my sobriety. I had been sober, I don't know, maybe three months. 
And um, when I, I sobered up in Sioux City, Iowa. And I sobered up at a, a clubhouse called 14th Street. And the woman who was my first sponsor, after the meeting, they would always go to coffee. And they would always invite me to go to coffee. <clears throat> and I would always say, no. No, thank you. I'm not going to coffee. Because I knew what happened at coffee. <clears throat> you know, you had to talk. And you had to st- say stuff that was intelligible or something that made sense. And I thought, you know, I, if I say something, if I start talking, they're going to know. I don't know what you're going to know, but you're going to know. You're going to know about these fears that I have, these fears of not getting something I want, losing something I have, or what will people think. Always made my decisions based on that. So, no, 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 I'm not going to go to coffee. Well, after about going to, meet, going to meetings for about three months, um, I had a weak moment one night, and they asked me to go to coffee, and I said, okay. And I went to coffee, and um, we're sitting at coffee, and I'm a little nervous, but it's okay, okay. I, you know, it'll be all right. And so I'm, I'm sitting in a booth with a bunch of other people, and everybody's talking and laughing and having a good time. It's a meeting after the meeting, and having a good time. And, and um, so I kind of got into it. You know how you just kind of enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm? And I just kind of, oh. And I, I was like a part of this group, and I, and I got comfortable, and I let down my guard, and I said something. Now, I can't tell you today what I said. I don't even know. It was so important, I don't even remember. But I can tell you what happened after a result of that. The minute I said those words, I went, why did I say that? You know, I'm thinking to myself, why did I say that? Like, it's all about me. Why did I say that? Okay, so we finish up our coffee and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm still thinking about this. And, okay, good night, and I'm driving home, and I'm thinking about, you know, that was, this, that was one of the dumbest things you have ever said, Brenda. Why did you say that? You could have just gone to coffee, kept your mouth shut. Everything would have been great. And you wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have been thinking you're so dumb. You know, it just... All that stuff. So I get home, I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm still thinking about what I said. And it's not going away. And, and then, then we start developing plans around that, okay? I don't know if you ever had any plans around your thinking. But I'm thinking, okay, I just won't go to coffee again, okay? I just, that'll take care of it. I just won't go to coffee again. Okay, fine. I felt good about that. Okay, so I go to bed. And I'm laying in bed, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh, that's not going to be enough. And I'm thinking, okay, I just, I won't go to that meeting anymore. Okay, I'll just, I'll find a new place to go to meetings. You know, these people are going to always be there, so I'll just go somewhere where there's new people. There's got to be lots of other meetings. Okay, so that's good. Okay, I'm feeling good about that. Okay, so now maybe I can relax and go to sleep. So I'm laying there, and it's not happening. I'm still thinking. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe this AA thing isn't such a good idea. (laughs) Maybe I'm different than they are. You know, I mean, they all seem to be saying okay stuff. And I'm just different. You know, maybe I'm just different and there's something else wrong with me. So maybe I just, just forget this whole AA thing. Now, I had been going to meetings long enough and I had put enough interrupters into my life And God has always been there. And for maybe a second, I must have just been open to 
hearing something different. Because a small little voice said to me, today the voice is much bigger, but I heard this small little voice and it said, maybe you should call your sponsor. (laughs) You know, she said you could call her any time, day or night. Doesn't make any difference. You can call her when you need to talk. Especially, you know, if you're thinking about picking up a drink, you always call somebody before you take that first drink and give them the opportunity to talk you out of it. That was drilled into me. You know, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. I thought that was crazy. It's not the first drink. It's all the other drinks. But it is the first drink. And so you call somebody before you pick up that first drink and give them the opportunity to talk you out of it. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe she can help with this. I don't know. I'll give her a shot. I'll see if she answers the phone. Because it's like, I don't know, 1, 2 in the morning. So I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's late. And so I, I went downstairs. I thought, okay, so I'm going to call. So I called her. She answered the phone. And then she, and I, you know, so then I said, hi, Pat. You know, this is Brenda. I'm sorry to bother you. Um, were you sleeping? You know, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, and and then and I said, um, okay, so I'm gonna. I just said, here's the deal, okay. And I gave her the spiel about this coffee thing, and I finally went, and then this happened, and uh, and um, I don't remember if she was sitting at our table or a different table, but and it doesn't make any difference. And so I go, I go on and on and on about this, and I'm like, you know, I don't know if this anything is for me, and da 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 da. And I was done, and I took this breath, and there was this silence on the other end of the phone. And then she very quietly said to me, Brenda, do you think that everybody is home right now losing sleep over what you said at coffee? (laughs) I heard that. And I heard it loud and clear. And I said, no, probably not. And she said, okay, well, then you can stop worrying about it, too, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. (laughs) I'll see you at the meeting. (laughs) That was my first genuine, genuine glimpse of humility, that it's, it's not all about me. And it's not thinking less of me. It's just thinking of me less. It's that simple. And I don't know how to do that left on my, to my own devices. You help me to think of me less. And so that's, I don't even know how I got on that, but um, you know, I'm, I was talking about um, my home group, I guess, and I was talking about getting out of myself. And oh, I know what I was gonna say about going to meetings. I always thought going to meetings was all about me. You know, that, that it, the meeting was for me, that I was supposed to get something from the meeting. And what I have learned is the meeting is not all about me. The meeting is really all about the new person. And that, you know, the meeting is about we come together as a group and together collectively we 12-step new people. Now, that doesn't mean that recovery doesn't happen there. But what it means is when I'm going to my meeting, if I'm thinking about what I can do to make it the best meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that it can be for the new person walking through the door, and I'm looking for that new person, then I must not be thinking about me for that period of time. 
And that's, that's why I love my group. We have greeters at the door. There's literature display at the back table, which is, by the way, just a little insight on that. If you're looking for a new person, they're usually standing by the literature table pretending that they're reading the literature. Because if they're reading, then you can't talk to them. I, that's a little, I knew that because I did it. Um, but anyway, so, it, you know, I... I, I want my group to be the best group that it can be so that I can go there and 12-step new people that are coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything we do here is for the new person. And in the process of my focusing on that, I get out of myself and start taking some actions that are contrary to what I want to take. Um, I try to live the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life, and I'm not talking about the 12 steps, just the 12 steps. I'm talking about the 12 traditions, and I'm talking about the 12 concepts. Excuse me. One of the things I learned is that I can apply the traditions and the concepts to myself individually and in in my relationships with other people. You know, the, the 12 traditions are all about, I mean, the steps are for me as an individual to recover and to find a power greater than myself, which is God for me today. The 12 traditions help me to, to learn how to play well with others and not have it be all about me. The first tradition tells me that the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is first and then my individual recovery. Without the unity, without what we have here unified, we won't stay together. And if we don't stay together, what happens to the, to the drunk out there still suffering? We can't help them. We as a, a society will fall apart. So that's, that tradition tells me that the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is the most important. And then all those other traditions after that tell me what it is that I should not do so that we can keep that unity, that I should remain or what I should do, actually, but it's all about don'ts that I should remain anonymous at the level of press, radio, and films, okay, that I should not get involved in outside issues, that I don't get involved in public controversy. I don't know if um, some of you have seen, um, there's been an article about a, a, um, a group in Washington, D.C. It was, I don't know, it was in the, some magazine recently. But, you know, that kind of stuff is not helpful to trying to help the alcoholic who still suffers. And it is my responsibility to help educate. You know, the biggest offenders of our traditions are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not the press. It's our responsibility. Oh, I'm on a tangent. (laughs) It's our responsibility. (laughs) Linda told me it was okay, so I can thank you. Okay, thank you. It's our responsibility to to inform the press. What, we think they're just going to pick up our traditions and read them? Oh, yeah, we should, we should make sure we don't use this person's last name. I mean, we are, we are the biggest offenders. I, and I know this because when I was delegate, all of the anonymity breaks come to the delegate. Right, Rod? And it's our, if they're locally, and it's our responsibility to, take, to you know, write a nice letter. I mean, I real, it's a nice letter, okay? Sometimes I wish it wasn't so nice. It's a nice letter to tell them and, and to explain our traditions. Um, so it's our responsibility. Who's going to do it if we don't? We are the guardians of our fellowship. We are the guardians of our society. 
We are the guardians of those traditions. If we don't do it, we shouldn't expect other people to do it. You know, we have been very fortunate. We have, we have been very fortunate to have wonderful non-alcoholics who have served our fellowship over the years. And I have had the privilege of meeting some of those non-alcoholics. And I have to tell you, they serve us for free and for fun. And they serve us in ways that some of us don't even serve us. And they do it for nothing. They do it for the love of Alcoholics Anonymous and for what we are trying to do. And, and, and to help us to better carry our message of, of recovery. We've had some wonderful um, non-alcoholics, Class A um, trustees, and um, they've, they've served us well. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is the concepts. And I thought, oh, those concepts, when I, especially when I was a new GSR, I thought, oh, those concepts, what are those? Those concepts are about, um, that's, for, that's for them in New York. You know, them in New York. Well, guess what? Them in New York work for us. You know, we, we are the voice, okay? And um, they, all they do at, at the general service office in New York is they, they, they publish our literature so that we can better carry the message. They open doors so that we can better carry the message. No one at the general service office does 12-step work unless they do it personally, but not from the office. What they do is help make 12-step work possible, just like our intergroup offices do. And so, you know, it's, it's up to us to do the 12-step work. And I thought, oh, that's, that's them. And I, what, I, what I've learned in studying the concepts and watching them in action is that those, though, there are so many principles in those 12 concepts that we can apply in our, in our individual lives um, like, for example, the right of decision. I can use that in my relationship, especially with my husband. You know, we both have, we have the right of decision. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just go off and do whatever we want whenever we want to do it. But in our relationships, we allow each other that right of decision. Talks about right of participation. We all have that right to participate. It's not what he wants all the time. It's not what I want all the time. We have that right of participation because we are in a relationship together. So we both have that right of participation. The one I like the best is on leadership, and it talks about how to be a leader, how to be a leader in Alcoholics Anonymous, how to be a leader in just whatever you're doing in life. I used to keep the, I know this is a little, a little out there, but I used to keep the service manual in my drawer at work. Some people think that's weird. And when I would go into meetings, especially if it was a significant meeting where I was, you know, maybe in charge of the meeting or I was working with the client and trying to get them to maybe see it my way, <laughs> whatever, you know, that I was trying to disseminate some information, I would read that part on leadership, you know, that we don't lead by mandate, that it's not about you will do this, that it's, it's a collective conscience, okay? And um, so I've learned a lot about um, those, those concepts and how I can use those in relationships with other people. Okay. And the last thing that I do today is I try to carry the message to the um, alcoholic who still suffers. And the me that message is recovery through the 12 steps. 
And it really boils down to, and I love this part in the book where it talks about this, it really boils down to trust God, clean house, and help others. That's it. It's not, it's, not any, it's not any more difficult than that. Trust God, clean house, and help others. And if I'm doing that on a regular, continuous basis, I've got my best shot at staying sober one day at a time for a long time. Okay, so I, I, do, I will tell you that I drank. Okay, I haven't even talked anything about my story. I had no idea. You know, I just try to be a channel, and I never know what God has in store for what I'm, I'm supposed to say. I just, I just ask that I'm, a, I'm the messenger, and whatever he wants the message to be today is what's going to come out of my mouth. Um, but I, I grew up in a small little town in northwest, northwest Iowa. I'm, I'm doing okay, right? And um, my parents owned a bar in that small little town in northwest Iowa of about 500 people. Okay, so I thought I knew what a drunk, I call them, I'm a drunk, okay, I'm an alcoholic, but, you know, same thing. And um, I, I knew what a drunk was. I knew what an alcoholic was because I would see them go out, my, out the back door of that bar and stumble down the alley trying to get home at night. Okay, I would see them. Um, not always because we weren't allowed to go in there um, during business hours, but sometimes there were exceptions made. And I would see the, the guys shaking, you know, trying to get an, a drink in them. Um, and I, I absolutely, Terry talks about this, and um, I think that we both have this in common, is I absolutely loved the, everything about the bar before I even took my first drink, when I was a little kid. On Sundays, this dates me, I'm going to be 50 this year, so we'll just cover that so you know, okay? So you're not trying to do math, okay? Um, when I was a little kid, there, w- there was no alcohol served on Sundays. So that was like clean the bar day. And, you know, we got to go, my brother and I got to go into the bar, and I was so, my brother doesn't remember anything like this, you know? It's totally, it's my, my brain. But I can remember, I, I can see that bar in my mind today. I, it was so exciting. Oh, my gosh, we get to go to the bar. And we get to help stock the coolers. And um, Dad would go over and flip a switch on the jukebox, and I could play all the songs I wanted. I knew all the songs. I wanted to be a singer, wanted to be an actress. I, you know, I wanted all, and I was just, I would pretend I was somewhere else, and the smell was so wonderful. Stale booze and stale smoke, and it was just you know, it was like magic. I was living vicariously at that point by going to that bar. And I, you know, I haven't even picked up my first drink. But it was, there was something really magical about that place. And, I, you know, I couldn't wait until I could sit up to that bar and have a drink. And, um, you know, my brother doesn't remember any of that. I remember what the color of the stools were and the booths were and all that stuff. So I, I knew what a drunk was, and I, you know, that was not something that I was going to be. I was not going to be one of those guys walking out that back door. A lot of things happened in my life as I was growing up. Um, my father died very suddenly. This was another turning point for me, and we all had these turning points in our lives that significantly changed the course or the direction of our life. And this was a significant turning point for me. My father died um, when I was 13, almost 14 years old, of a condition called pancreatitis. 
Um, I can't tell you, I can't stand here today and tell you that, um, that my father was an alcoholic because I don't know, but I know my father drank a lot. And I also know that the, condi the condition of pancreatitis can be brought on by excessive drinking, and there was definitely some excessive drinking happening. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because um, at that point um, is when I had my first drunk, right at, shortly after my father died. I was the oldest of three children, and so, you know, I had, I had tried sips of alcohol and that, but I had, never, I had never gotten drunk. And I had an older cousin who got me a fake ID. Um, I, you know, when I was 13, I looked like I do today. Well, not, not totally, but I mean, I was very mature for 13. And um, so I could get into bars. And, um, yeah, or actually, my first drunk was a kegger in a cornfield. Okay. Everybody knows those, yeah. right? Yeah, right. That's what we do, right? And, I mean, and the cops left us alone, and you just, you know, you get somebody to buy a cake, and everybody pays so much, and you drink however much you want. And, but, and I don't even remember all the circumstances around that, but I can tell you how I felt. I can remember how I felt, and I sought that feeling until I stopped drinking. It changed my perception of reality. It changed everything about me. It changed how I felt. Um, you suddenly, I, I suddenly could talk to you. I suddenly felt comfortable in my own skin. It was, it was magic. And you know that that doesn't that kind of magic does not happen for normal drinkers. My mom is a normal drinker, and she didn't mind if I use this. She will have one, maybe two, and then she will say. No, I don't think I want any more. I'm starting to feel it. And I do not understand that. What, what do you mean you're starting to feel it? That's the idea. You know, have another one. You'll feel it even more. You know, I just don't understand. How can you cut that off? How can you stop that? Um, but she can. So she's a normal drinker. She doesn't understand my drinking. Um, so anyway, I drank um, sh a short period of time hard. And um, because I was the oldest, you know, my drinking was pretty much confined to weekends. I graduated from high school and went off to college. I was the first female in my family um, to go to college. I never finished. But I w when I announced to my mother and my grandmother that I was going to go to college, it was like, because no other female in my family had done that before. And I went off to school in Fort Dodge for um, their radio broadcasting program. And I was free. And, I, you know, I was able to hold it together for a year. My first year of college, I, um, I was on the dean's list. I did very well. My second year, I was flunking out. You know, the progression of alcoholism in me happened very quickly once I could drink more often and more regularly. We used to have, um, we used to have what were called, um, oh, um, there were like uh, challenges at the bar where you would drink you know, and um, uh, could, we could see which resident hall, which hall, uh, which floor could drink the most, and they always wanted me on their team. They always wanted me on their team. So anyway, um, I uh, so I I didn't I didn't finish uh, college, and I moved around a lot, a lot of jobs, a lot of you know you know the story. I mean, you know, I'm always good at starting over. I mean, this time because this time it's going to be different. You know, I really believed that. I really believed that this time it was going to be different. And what I didn't know is that I was taking me with me. Okay. 
So really, long story short, what happened was I moved around a lot, um, and I found myself in Sioux City, Iowa, and I had gotten a job at the ra- a television station there in Sioux City, an NBC affiliate, and I became a reporter. And I, you know, I was going to make my fame and fortune in television. And you know, if I had stuck with it, I, I might still be in that field today. I don't know. There weren't a lot of women in television in the early 80s, and um, or you know, late 70s. And so, um, but I couldn't. I couldn't hold it together. I mean, my drinking was too more important. And um, so I lost that job. And uh, one day I was sitting in, um, called to my boss's office, and I was sitting in his office, and he said to me. Um, Brenda, you know, you, you're really good. You're really good at what you do. You, have, you really have had a future here. But, um, you know, we need you to come in when we need you, not when you want to, <laughs> which is my deal because I was always so hungover. And, you know, I mean, work is an inconvenience, okay? So you, you show up. They should be happy you show up. And um, so I, he said, so we really need you to come when, you co- when we need you, not when you want to come. And um, so we're going to have to let you go. But we're going to let you resign so it looks better on your resume, but under one stipulation, that you go and talk to somebody at the local treatment center. And I'm like, I've never heard of treatment. You know, this was in July of, of uh, no, this was in March of 1980. I had never heard of treatment. And I said, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. You know, I just wanted to get out of his office. And he said, well, here, why don't you just give this woman a call right now? Well, conveniently, she was there. And she answered her phone. And she said, oh, I just have an opening right now. Why don't you come on down? I'm like, okay. So I went down, and I, I took these questions. You know, this was total setup. I took these questions. And um, I, I don't even remember what they were, and I answered them. And she said, you know, Brenda, she said, I, I really believe that you have a problem with alcohol, and it would be good for you to stay here in our inpatient treatment um, for 30 days. And I said, I can't do that. I said, I just lost a job. I have no job. I have no money. I have nothing. I said, I can't do that. Do you have any other options? And she said, well, we have an outpatient program. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the information on that. I'll look it over, and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Now, she let me out of her office. I left there, and, you know, like, I'm good at starting over. I left there. I had no intention of getting back to her. I left there, and I went. I was living with an aunt and uncle at that time. Like I said, I was moving around. And um, I went to their house, and I opened up the newspaper, and I thought, well, I need a job. I can't drink without a job. And um, I was looking through the, you know, the classifieds. I was looking through the jobs that were available, and I saw this ad for a guy who was gaining custody of his two children, and he needed someone to move into the home to take care of the home and the children. And I went, I'm there. I know how to do that. You know, my father died. I had a sister who was 12 years younger than I was. I had a brother who was three years younger than I was. I became like a surrogate mother. I took, you know, I helped my mom. I knew I know how to do that. That's like a piece of cake. So I called the guy up. He was available. I went over, had an interview, and he hired me. Now, I want you to get a picture of, you heard T- Terry tell the story Friday night. This is, this is the other side of it. Um, the picture of how I showed up for that interview, okay? I had on a very tight black leotard. I was, you know, a few pounds lighter. And a little wraparound black skirt. And um, wooden shoes about this tall. My hair was streaked I mean, white, white, white blonde sticking up. 
I had like five pounds of makeup on, and I was interviewing to take care of his children and run his home. And he hired me. What's wrong with that picture? Well, so I moved in, and we were going to set up house, and everything was going to be wonderful, and um, we were going. The focus was on those children, and we were going to live happily ever after in that, you know, under that circumstance. Well, long story short, um, I still have active alcoholism. He's five years sober. Um, I do really good for a few months, and then I get restless, irritable, and discontent. You know what that is. And I got a drink, and so I tell him one night. I knew I couldn't say I'm going to go out and get drunk. So I said, you know, my, it's my cousin's birthday. I'm going to have coffee and tea. I'll be home early, da-da-da. That was on Tuesday, and I came back on Saturday. And that's when he introduced me to my first sponsor, and I already told you all that story, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to preface it. I do not believe that this is what you should do. The women that I sponsor, I suggest to them that you not get involved or make any significant changes in the first year of your sobriety, especially a relationship, because we aren't good at those. Like I said, I took hostages, and so I don't recommend this, but it happened. I got sober in July, and Terry and I were married in November. Now, I can tell you the only reason that has worked is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because he is sponsored, because I am sponsored, because we sponsor, because we're both in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, we're both active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, You know, that's the only way it could possibly work. I really believe that. I mean, I've watched other people. And I, you know, I, I, it's not something I recommend, but it's my journey and it's my story. And um, so it, it just, it, it worked out that way. Um, and we got married, and um, it was not easy. You know, I was trying to grow up. I was trying to get and stay sober. I was trying to grow up. I was trying. I mean, you know, we had a lot of ups and downs. But um, those children were um, seven and almost nine years old when they moved in with us. And they lived with us um, till they graduated from high school and went off to college. And they are now um, 30, 35 and 33 years old. And um, I, have, I have an absolutely wonderful relationship with those children. Um, you know, we were never able to have any children of our own, but it's, it's as if they are mine. And I want to, I brought something with me today that I I wanted to read because um, I really do um, have such a deep, special relationship with them. And a couple of years ago, on my 25th anniversary, um, our daughter Tracy um, was not able to come. There was a celebration, and the family's all invited, and, and she wasn't able to come. But she sent me this letter, and I carried this letter around with me in my big book to remind me of what I need to do to make sure that my relationship with her stays this way. It keeps me, it keeps me looking forward. It keeps me focused on what I need to do to maintain me in my recovery to be able to keep this relationship this way. And this is what she wrote. Dear Brenda, 
I want you to know I'm sorry we can't make it for your 25th year AA anniversary celebration. I want you to know I think it's a big deal, an awesome and important reason to celebrate. I love you and your years and time and effort and growth and service in AA have been such an influence in my life. I'm proud of you and happy for you, and I celebrate with you. I'm sorry circumstances this time make me all words and no action. I can't be there. But I hope you know I speak the truth. I love you, Tracy. That is not possible without Alcoholics Anonymous. And then my son Skip, my stepson Skip, our, our relationship over the years has always been because we're so much alike. <laughs> and um, so we've always butted heads. And my relationship with him today is amazing. He has, he has two little girls. Franny is two and a half and Vivian is nine, eight, eight months. And they actually trust me to take care of their children for days at a time. A drunk like me, they hand me their babies to take care of, and they go away for the weekend. And I wouldn't have that without Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I have a lot to lose. I have a lot to lose if I leave here. And I don't want to leave here. I want to stay. I want to stay and I want to continue to grow and I want to be in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with people like you, I have a chance of doing that. With the stuff that I've heard this weekend, I have a chance of doing that. Um, how am I doing, Bill? Good? Okay. I want to talk then about a couple of things that happened. In 1985, Terry and I moved to uh, Minneapolis. Now, I want you to know that I was convinced I would never stay, stay sober in Minneapolis. I was five years sober. They do it so different. You know, I would go to meetings and think, how are these people staying sober? <laughs> this is not AA. This is, I mean, it was, it was so different from what I had grew up with in the first five years of my sobriety. And I would go to the meeting with an attitude. <laughs> Imagine. I would go to the meeting with an attitude, and it showed, because I was just, I was, I was put out. I was just, this is just, I don't know what, I don't know what we're going to do, you know. I mean, not that I didn't feel welcome. I was just looking for all of the differences and none of the similarities. And I had a woman come up to me after the meeting one night, and she got right in my face. And she said, you know, Brenda, you would probably feel a lot more comfortable here if you would look for some of the differences instead, or some of the similarities instead of all of the differences. And then she turned around and walked away. And I went, wow, how dare her? I'm doing the best I can. But I thought about that, and I knew that she was right. And that was a turning point for me. I mean, I, we got involved. Like Terry said, we talked to Chuck, and, and we got in the middle of AA there, and we continued to be sponsored. And we've lived there um, for over 20 years. I mean, that's just amazing. It's, it's exactly what it talks about in the Chapter um, 7 in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. A fellowship will grow up about you. You will have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. 
We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other, all of us, is the great spot of our lives. It's the bright spot of our lives. And that's really true. Um, you know, we've had some ups and downs. We've had some things happen. Um, you know, in 1987, when I was seven years sober, my sister, my 17-year-old sister was um, killed by a drunk driver on her way to school one morning. And that, I almost drank over that. Um, I, I almost drank over that whole experience. And I, when Scott was talking about his spiritual experience last night, I, I had an out-of-body experience during that time. And thank goodness that the God of my understanding's voice was louder than mine and that I had been in the middle of AA and growing and, and taking some actions with the steps and had been around for a while because the voice that came out to me loud and clear was, call your sponsor now. It was, I was looking at me and, that, and me was telling me, call your sponsor now. Remember. You, you need to pick up the phone before you take the first drink. And I did that, and I'm still here. But that was, that was a tough one to go through. I mean, we've had stuff happen. You know, when I was uh, 10 years ago, I had open-heart surgery. <sighs> right? 39 years old, and you have open-heart surgery? You know, I had a congenital heart defect I never knew I had. Thank God I never got pregnant. My surgeon told me that if I had gotten pregnant, giving birth to a child would have killed me because of the size of the hole in my heart. I would have never survived that. And I thought I was being punished. I thought that I was being punished for my actions previous to Alcoholics Anonymous. God has always been doing for me what I cannot do for myself. Always, always, always. And why I ever doubt that is beyond, well, it's my brain. It tells me stuff that isn't true, and I believe it. So that's why I need stuff in my life so that I can see God more clearly, so I can see that there is a direction for me. I just, need to, I just need to show up and get out of the way. I just need to show up and get out of the way. Um, recently, uh, a little, our little girl, Tracy's little girl, and I'm going to talk about this because this is a huge thing, um, that we are able to come together, just like we do in AA, that we're able to come together as a family. In times of not only joy, but in, time, in hard times. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I got a call. We got a call from our daughter, and um, our little three-and-a-half-year-old daughter had accidentally, it was an accident, they were camping, and she fell into a fire pit of hot coals. And she was pretty severely burned. And she was in the burn unit at um, Children's Hospital in Kansas City for nine days. And Tracy called me and ask if I could come to be there with them and to help. What a blessing. And, and she's going to be fine. She's out of the hospital. She's not going to need any skin grafting. Um, everything is healing nicely. Um, so we're very grateful for that. But, but to be able to be there to be the one that she felt could give her the comfort to be the best mom that she could be in that situation by allowing me to be the best mom that I could be in helping and to be the best grandma. I'm a good grandma. I want you to know that. <laughs> I love being a grandma, and I'm a good grandma. 
I love those. I love those children. It's like God gave. I, I never had children of my own. It's like God gave me these children, and and my stepchildren are allowing me to be a huge part of their lives and their growing up. And that's that's a that's a huge gift. So anyway, there's a part in the big book, and I'm going to close. It says. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were far better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of the higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Now, I, that says to me, no matter what is going around, on, around me in my life, my butt might be falling off or on fire or whatever is happening around me in my life, if I do this, I will be okay. And you will do it with me. I don't have to do it alone. I don't, have, I don't have to believe the stuff that my brain tells me that isn't true. I know that I am loved. I knew today when I was coming here this morning that I was going to be in a room full of friends that I loved and that loved me. I may not know all of you. I know a lot of you. This is like coming home. I grew up in Iowa. You know, this is, I have a lot of friends here. I learned a lot here. And I knew that I was going to be okay no matter what. We do together what we can't do alone. And, and I, I just, I, you know, that coming to weekends like that just reinstills that in me that we can do together what I can't do alone. And I don't want to do it alone anymore. So please continue to walk the journey with me. Like it says, it, the thing you're going to read at the end here, it says trudging the road of happy destiny. You know, when, this, when that was written... Trudge did not mean what we think it means today. It wasn't like kicking, dragging, screaming. You know, no, I don't want to do it. It wasn't. It wasn't that. What trudge meant back in 1930s, when this was written, was walking deliberately with a purpose. And every time I hear this read, that's what I think. You will surely meet some of us as you walk deliberately with a purpose. And he will keep you, or and uh, deliberately and with a purpose, toward the road of happy destiny. I have a purpose in my life today, and you have given me that purpose. I know what God's will for me today is. I don't need to know anything else. God's will for me today is to stay sober and help others. And everything else that happens to me in my life around that is icing on the cake. If I can just keep that focus, stay sober help others and trust that God will help me to do that. I want to thank you for my life and the many blessings. I want to thank you for my sobriety. I want to thank you for being able to allow me to grow, to have a relationship with a man that is amazing, you know, that I have been able to be faithful to and and that we have been able to grow old, that we're growing old together, honey. We are. Can you believe it? He's like, cut it, stop, you're done. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having this conference.